0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Stupski Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
1: And I'm John Fensterwald.
0: Well, I don't have to tell any of you out there that this was a big week. Actually, it doesn't get much bigger than this. With a swearing in of President Joe Biden. Within a day of taking office, Biden showed that education is an usually important priority, and uh, he started implementing some of the things that he talked about in his campaign. This week, he reiterated his vow to speed up vaccinations and came out with a very detailed plan to help schools reopen
1: safely within the next 100 days, at least elementary schools. That comes on top of his announcement previously that he would send Congress a stimulus bill that's like 2 trillion dollars and that would include 100 billion for K12 and 35 billion for higher education. So if you want to do the math that's roughly 15 billion dollars for California, Lewis, and that's on top of the 7.8 billion that Congress already approved back in December. And in case any of you forget, Biden came to
0: office with a usually ambitious education agenda at both the K-12 level and post-secondary level. At the K-12 level, he's proposing investing in teacher mentoring programs, helping teachers reduce their student loan obligations in return for working in high-need schools, and he also wants to double the number of counselors and psychologists in the nation. Also, a very comprehensive early education program.
1: Yeah, and don't forget his promise previously to provide what's called full funding for special education. And that's been pursued in Congress for decades to no avail. Of course, he can't do almost any of this by himself need to get Congress
0: to approve it. We'll see how that goes. But today we are fortunate to speak to two of the nation's foremost authorities on K-12 schools and higher education. They're familiar to many of you, Linda Darling-Hammond and Ted Mitchell. Linda Darling-Hammond wears many hats. She's president of the State Board of Education. She's a distinguished professor emeritus at Stanford. Her day job is as president of the Learning Policy Institute. And on top of all of that, for the last few months, she's headed up the Education Transition Team for President-elect Biden.
1: Yeah, and Lewis, if there were frequent flyer miles for Zoom meetings in Washington, I bet Linda Darling-Hammond would have a lifetime worth just in the past two months.
0: Yes, John, it's been a super intense time and no doubt will continue to be. And that's one reason we were pleased that uh, Linda Darling-Hammond could join us today. Welcome, Linda. Glad to be here. One of the big issues on the table and one of the big issues the Biden administration, newly installed, uh, addressed this week, is trying to get schools to reopen, usually complex and very controversial. We've got people on both sides of the fence on that one. Where do we stand as a state in terms of trying to get schools open? And then, you know, how important do you see what is being proposed uh, will be in terms of really getting resources to schools in terms of what they need?
2: Well, I think the key word is the adverb safely, how to reopen schools safely. Um, I think there's a lot of interest on all sides in getting schools reopened, but that needs to be safe. It means certainly the personal protective equipment. It means the capacity to physically distance, you know, children to test for the virus and to keep kids organized in small cohorts so that any positive test is accompanied with tracing that allows people to quarantine and not spread the virus. There's a good track record with respect to very low rates of transmission in schools that use all the mitigation strategies that are needed. Uh, but those have to include all of the things I mentioned, and we are on the verge of being able to start vaccinating you know, staff and then students, and that's gonna be a critical part of the safe reopening over the long haul. All of these things require resources, that the federal government is now beginning to step up to provide along with state resources that are on the table.
1: So there's been a lot of discussion in California, as you know, and the governor has a plan for reopening. One of the challenges has been the cost of testing. That's consistently been raised by school districts as very expensive. And I noticed that uh, President Biden is proposing to give additional money to cover testing. Would that include schools and can schools assume that they will be able to at least cover some, if not all of them.
2: Yes. And there's a major piece of COVID relief that was negotiated uh, by the Congress with lots of people weighing in in December. And there's also President Biden has announced an effort to expand that COVID relief. The package that's already on its way to us does include about $6.7 billion in California, for a variety of purposes, having to do with supporting schools reopening, including testing, including support for vaccinations, for personal protective equipment, for digital devices and connectivity, all of those kinds of things are on the table and more resources will be coming. Even more important in some ways is getting the supply chain of vaccines and the supply chain of testing out to the states so that there's enough to go around. And that's a place where the federal government is now preparing to move into very rapid action where there was not enough attention previously.
1: The goal is to get the majority of schools open within 100 days, which would place it in mid-April. And schools may say, well, that's almost at the end of the year. Should we view then for schools that open, you know, after a month or two, should they look at phasing in or emphasizing struggling students coming back first when you get into April?
2: Well, first of all, I will say that California is not alone in having already begun to bring back students in small instructional groups who may struggle for a variety of reasons. Students with special education needs, uh, students who might not have connectivity to the internet, students who may be homeless, so yes, Phasing is important, also getting the youngest children back, because you know, we know that distance learning is much more challenging for kindergartners and first and second graders, and they need to build those foundational skills than older students. We should also be thinking about the fact that this school year does not necessarily end you know, in the first week of June that you know, we need to be thinking about the calendar in a different way. If we start to get kids back to school physically in April, there's resources in the governor's budget and there are additional opportunities to use resources from federal funds to extend the school year, to offer summer school to all students, even potentially to open school earlier next year so that we begin to use that in-person learning time to the greatest extent possible.
0: Do you think school districts should be looking at potentially a longer school year next year? I know we talked with Superintendent Austin Butner in LAUSD, and he certainly is thinking about that, shortening maybe the winter break and so on.
2: Yeah, and you know, there's been an argument around year-round schooling for many years. In some other countries, I've spent a lot of time in Singapore, for example. The school year plays out in a way that there aren't any long two or three month breaks. There are a number of two-week breaks or maybe three-week breaks throughout the year so that there is less opportunity for what people think of as uh, here as summer learning loss, where students who aren't getting enrichment in the summer have a long period of time to forget what they'd learned during the school year. And so I think that many people are gonna be looking at how do we rethink the school calendar so that we use time in productive ways. And some people already do it.
0: But the longer school year would require additional resources, obviously, uh, more time and more staff costs. Is this included? I mean, do you think, we're talking about all the money that's on the table from the state, from the feds, ones that have already been approved, do you think there's enough money there to extend the school year?
2: Yes, I think that for people who want to use the resources, there will be enough money to extend the school year. By a month, maybe even by six weeks or eight weeks, or to do summer school, as Los Angeles did last year, that was open to all students. And they got a couple of hundred thousand kids um, involved in summer school last year.
1: What about early education, Linda? Is that a priority? And, And it seems that Congress may be easier to reach a consensus around that in the past, at least. Is this a priority for President Biden?
2: It is a big priority for President Biden. He has um, issued a very ambitious early education plan with a proposed allocation of up to $800 billion over the next decade to get to a place where we have both supports for child care. Uh, and in the near term, we need to bring child care and preschool programs back that have shut down. So that's an immediate need, but then he also has a proposal for universal pre-K for three- and four-year-olds. And I'll note that we have a master plan for early education that's just been released in California in December that is also aiming to create a seamless, well-organized system that also provides universal pre-K.
0: You know, I think in the past, uh, various administrations, there's been some conflict between uh, federal policies and often funds come with strings attached. And where are you sitting right now? Do you see an integration, a complementarity between what is being proposed at the federal level by the Biden administration and what we are doing here in California?
2: I think there are a lot of complementarities. The things that President Biden has said he wants to take up early childhood education, investments in special education, investments in uh, growing and diversifying the teacher workforce and supporting that workforce, investments in equity in education, are all things that are on the agenda here in California as well. Uh, And I think that the supports that the federal government is likely to give to those improvements in education will enable some of the work that is already begun in this state.
0: I do have to ask you about the new Secretary of Education, uh, or nominee, shall I say, still has to be approved by the Senate, Miguel Cardona. Just give us your thoughts.
2: I'm really pleased about Dr. Miguel Cardona and what he will bring to the role of Secretary. Uh, He is currently Commissioner of Education in Connecticut, He is a career educator who has been a very enthusiastic and excellent teacher, school principal, superintendent, and then state commissioner. He understands education deeply. He is devoted to equity in education. He's got his master's degree in bilingual, bicultural education, and he really understands both how children learn generally and how they learn and develop language in uh, multicultural ways. He is extremely thoughtful about education policy, and he is completely devoted to the welfare of children and families. So I think he will do a wonderful job.
1: Cindy Martin, Superintendent of San Diego, has been nominated as Deputy Secretary. So how would she complement... Uh, the secretary, and how do you think that the two of them, as a team, might work?
2: Cindy, you know, comes out of a very impressive career in education. was a fabulous teacher. She was a literacy teacher, and San Diego was known at that time for having one of the most thoughtful and ambitious literacy development programs in the country. She was a very successful school principal in a high needs school in San Diego before becoming uh, superintendent. She's done enormous work to close the opportunity and the achievement gaps in that district. So she brings a knowledge base about how to make a productive educational change, how to uh, improve the quality of schools, how to close opportunity and equity gaps. So I think that will be a An excellent compliment to what um, Dr. Cardona brings. And I think they will be able together to really uh, both understand the issues that school districts face and also at the district level and the state level, and also to bring thoughtful strategies to addressing those needs from the federal government.
0: Well, on that note, we've been talking with Linda Darling-Hammond. Thanks for talking with
1: us today. Pleasure to be here. Let's turn now to post-secondary education, and to get a perspective on the Biden administration's plans, we'll hear from Ted Mitchell. He's president of the American Council on Education.
0: There are few people who have both a national perspective and are also deeply knowledgeable about California. Ted Mitchell was president of the State Board of Education. He was president of Occidental College, dean of the Graduate School of Education at UCLA, member of the Stanford Board of Trustees, and equally importantly, he was Undersecretary of Education during the Obama administration. Welcome Ted.
3: Thanks for having me. Great to be with
0: you again. So Ted, just tell us a little bit about ACE.
3: So ACE is the umbrella organization for American uh, higher education institutions. We represent the nation's two-year institutions, four-year institutions, public and private. So. We've got an interest in the, the success of students across the board. Uh, we've been around for 100 years. Uh, we were started after World War I to help make opportunities for returning veterans. And we continue that work along with other policy advocacy work for the nation's colleges and universities.
0: Well, let me just ask you, even in President Biden's first week, he's done some significant things on higher education.
3: Lewis, you're right on target. The Biden administration uh, is off to a running start. In just the last few days, the team has issued three executive orders that have a dramatic and positive impact on higher education. First of all, they've extended the moratorium on student loan payments. Uh, Now is not the time for us to be asking students and their families to repay their student loans, and the administration is supporting that with an extension of that moratorium. The second order is just the remarkable, remarkable work that they've done on DACA, the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals, the DREAMers, creating for them uh, security in the DACA program and in the next several months, a path to citizenship. And then finally, and probably least known is that the Trump administration had signed an executive order that essentially prohibited colleges and universities, and in fact, all recipients of federal funds from engaging in training programs that encouraged diversity, equity, and inclusion in their institutions by helping institutions understand systemic racism, understand unconscious bias. President Biden himself signed the executive order rescinding that restriction. And so once again, colleges and universities are able to do what they do best, which is help students, help their communities uh, develop skills around uh, the diverse student body, the diverse communities that we have, especially in California, but across the country.
0: I did note that in his inaugural address, President Biden referred to systemic racism. I I would be willing to bet that that was the first time that phrase has appeared in an inaugural address.
3: I think that that's true And one of the other orders that he made across the agencies was asking the agencies to identify plans for how they can increase equity in their hiring and in their promotion. So... I think that uh, we are not done hearing about and working on systemic racism.
0: So let's just jump to one of the other big promises or pledges of President Biden, loan forgiveness. I mean, there's one thing to suspend the payments temporarily. They still have to pay it back. But uh, he had proposed $10,000 forgiveness, which a lot of students have don't have more than that, so that would totally wipe out their student loan debt and of course would make a difference for others with higher obligations. Some people say, uh, well, that's not enough, should be like $50,000 forgiveness. Where do you come down on this?
3: Because obviously this is a usually expensive program. The majority of student loans that are in default, that is students who, who are really having trouble paying their student loans, are under $10,000. And so it makes some sense if we are aiming to help the students who, are, who most need it, uh, to aim first at those loans that are in default, and 10,000 is a reasonable number. Going forward, I think that there are certain things in the student loan program that are artifacts of legislation over time that we need to clean out. Student loans are, uh, I think, if not the only, one of the only kinds of loan that you can take out that's not dischargeable in bankruptcy. And so uh, borrowers who borrow student loans, uh, we think at ACE, uh, ought to be able to discharge that uh, if they go bankrupt. Second, uh, we've had, and and when I was in the administration, uh, we've had continuing problems with the quality of loan servicing, the advice that borrowers get. So we need to do an overhaul of of loan servicing. And finally, we have a, a loan system that's based on 1980s style mortgages and car loans, when in fact, many countries are turning to income-based repayment plans for student loans. We have an experiment in, in this country in which we're basing the amount of money students pay back on their income, not on how much they owed. And we at ACE and other associations think that that should be expanded. So uh, taking care of student borrowers today is important. Uh, Congress will work with the administration to find the right number. And in the long run, we support some fundamental changes in the, in the student loan program that we hope will not have us having the same conversation 20 years from today. We're talking
0: with uh, Ted Mitchell, president of the American Council on Education. I should also have mentioned that Ted was the undersecretary of education in the Obama administration, and actually you were kind of in charge of the student loan program in that position, right? So you you are intimately familiar with the pluses and minuses of the student loan program, programs, I should say.
3: That's right.
0: Let me just jump to another very what seems to be a quite an ambitious part of the Biden pledge, shall we say, to make tuition for public colleges and universities free to all families with incomes under one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. Now in California, we have made a pretty big dent in that with the tuition waivers and so on, but still not across the board for those families. I think the middle-class loan program is very limited. I don't know if it even exists anymore in California. Where do you come down on that very ambitious program?
3: The goal is the right goal to make college more affordable for low-income and middle-income families. Uh, I think the the question is, what's the right mechanism to do that? Our mechanism of choice is to utilize the programs that are already in place, particularly the Pell program, so we are advocating and working with, the, with Congress and the administration to develop a proposal to double the Pell Grant. And doubling the Pell Grant would put uh, more money in the hands of low-income and, and um, middle-income families. And if you look at a doubled Pell Grant, that amount of money would cover the cost of uh, all community colleges and a majority of public four-year institutions. So we we think you can get there, but we think that there's a simpler, more direct way to do it.
0: Uh, it would be amiss of me not to focus on or ask you about what is really a central part of the Biden plan, which is focusing on community colleges. In fact, there's a proposal to come up with a $50 billion investment fund, just in workforce training for the community colleges. Do you think this is going to kind of set up a competition between the community college folks and the four-year folks? How does one balance all these needs?
3: $50 billion is a big number, but I think that it's an important down payment on the work that we need to do in our community colleges. They are closest to the workforce. It makes a great deal of sense for community colleges to be the hub of workforce training in American higher education. That's not to say that four-year institutions don't have a role to play. They do, they have, and they will but I'm thrilled at the focus on community colleges.
0: I do have to ask you about the political viability of this. How likely is it that even a portion of this will happen?
3: I'm confident uh, that the Biden team uh, has done its homework, uh, both politically and and financially. I think that they know that these are strong investments in the nation's future. uh, And I think that there will be broad consensus across the aisle on a number of these. I think uh, under-resourced institutions need our support. That's well-recognized. I think that uh, workforce development needs a shot in the arm. That's well-recognized. And institutions uh, have really stepped up in the time of pandemic uh, to serve their students and their communities. And so I I think that these are big numbers, but they are realistic.
0: Well, on that note, really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Ted Mitchell, president of the American Council on Education.
1: Thank you, Louis. Well, Lewis, what do you think? When you look at the uh, agenda for post-secondary education, K 12 it's really full. Pretty amazing when you think
0: about how this contrasts with uh, the last four years, President Trump being mostly missing in action on this issue, other than reversing various programs, executive orders of President Obama. And I just want to remind you that when now former President Trump ran for office, he had two things on his education agenda. One was saying he'd promote school choice, which we of course heard about when he ran four years ago, and providing no further details, I should add, and that he also wanted to
1: end indoctrination of kids in American schools. He did try and get a number of school choice and voucher programs through, he introduced them in Congress, but they were thwarted by the Senate and the House, which is to say then, Joe Biden's going to need the cooperation of Congress to get this passed, and it's probably going to need to be bipartisan.
0: And as uh, Linda Darling-Hammond was saying, you know, education is relatively non-ideological. I mean, it doesn't have the same kind of passion around it as something like immigration or reproductive rights and so on. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see whether Republicans now suddenly become budget hawks again, You know, after approving trillions of dollars in tax cuts, or whether they will recognize the urgency of the current
1: moment. When you think back, the relationship between California and Washington over the past four years would be in the form of lawsuits by then Attorney General Becerra, uh, numerous cases against Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education. And it's now, I think it's changed. Well, let's hope so. It's time to wrap it up for this
0: week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Swartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwall. Thanks for listening. Stay well, and we'll be back next week.